My name is Paul Mills Hicks, and my leadership lesson is to not accept the status quo and always challenge. Hello, and welcome to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. I'm Kate McGee, the editor of Management Today. And I'm Ailish Cronin, staff writer at Management Today. In this episode, we speak to Paul Mill Hicks, who's a retail expert on the state of the retail market. Ailish, do you want to tell us what you found most interesting about the interview? Paul Mills Hicks is the former commercial director for Sainsbury's and chairman of Sense Marketing. We discuss the current challenges facing the FMCG retail sector, including the impact of COVID. And he gave some advice for retail leaders of how not to fail at retail. What was interesting is I asked him about how consumer needs have changed over time and how are retail leaders responding to the change in those needs. And he said that consumer needs actually haven't changed and they've stayed largely the same. And he said, what everybody wants is a grocery store at the end of their garden where everything's free. (laughs) And he said that, you know, despite all of the challenges that the retail industry has tried to provide that, yeah, wow, that would be quite amazing, wouldn't it, to have a uh, <laughs> a free store at the end of your garden. Ocado's results were actually out this morning and they reported a pre-tax loss of £289.5 million for the six months to May 28, which is a fall of 37% on the same period a year ago. And there's lots of stories about tensions rising between Ocado and M&S, which I'm sure Waitrose are rubbing their hands with glee about. And revenues rose by 5% due to the higher food prices. But interestingly, people were buying fewer items, which is sort of 6.3% fewer due to the cost of living crisis. It's going to be really interesting to see how the retail industry responds to the fallout from the mortgage crisis and what impact that's going to have on consumer spending and whether we're actually going to enter into the long awaited recession that we've been talking about for probably 18 months now. So that's going to be kind of fascinating. Sticking with the retail theme, Ailish, you also interviewed JD Sports Chief Exec. What did you find interesting about that interview? Yes, so his name is Regis Schultz, who's the Chief Exec of JD Sports, and he joined the company in September last year. And since his arrival, the company's expected to reach just over a billion profits this year. And he's come in, gotten the ball rolling with a sort of JD First strategy. He's opened up you know, 1,700 new stores across the globe. And he's launched this direct-to-consumer loyalty scheme with Nike, which is interesting because Nike, sort of since about 2017, Nike has been cutting its relationships with a lot of its third-party retailers. So he's managed to kind of retain that strong relationship with them. And I think what's interesting is he's really kind of tapped into the younger generations. He's not shied away from tapping into their needs and their wants. And I spoke to him a few weeks ago at JD's head offices on Oxford Street, and he's made comments previously about the rise of athleisure and its popularity amongst younger consumers, Gen Z, millennials. And one of the things he said, which I thought was quite interesting when talking about the mortgage crisis and inflation, he said that because most of young people don't have mortgages, And because inflation is really affecting mortgages quite severely, couple that with youth unemployment being relatively low, this has created a sort of perfect environment where the athleisure trend can grow. And this is sort of in keeping with his people strategy that he's implemented at JD. He really champions the younger generations. He said to me that the JD store staff looks like their customers. 
Um, he said about 10,000 of their 80,000 staff are below the age of 18. He actually hired 18,000 more store staff last year and increased their salaries. And he said that he did that because working at somewhere like JD Sports in those stores, he says it plays a major role in offering them their first job, helping them discover what having a job is like, coming in on time, having that discipline and having that pay rise has kind of reassured them that they don't just care about their development in their career, but also the standard of living. So he kind of recognises that the children are the future and that people talk about is what five generations in the workplace now and how they're all competing with each other and how there's these great big differences between Gen Z millennials and then older generations whereas he's just sort of really saying no this is where the future is this is where JD is and not being afraid to support that generation. Well, it's interesting because I suppose a lot of businesses probably are trying to target people that they think have got the most money obviously to buy their products and that's often the people that you think won't have more disposable income are the people that are higher earners and yet I think that's quite interesting with these trends coming in with the cost of living crisis and the mortgage crisis and the responsibilities and the bills and food bills prices increasing that actually that the younger generation may have more disposable income at this point. So it's kind of interesting. And obviously, that's a, a classic you know, rule of good management that he's got a, very, a good brand, very clear customer in mind and sticking mm. to that. And I suppose that generation perhaps care a bit more about their appearances. You know, the latest trainers are such a big mm. fashion thing. They must have them. You know, it matters probably more to them as a percentage of and they're willing to probably spend more of their income yeah. and can spend more of their income on those sort of products compared to somebody who's just seen their mortgage increase by 500, 600 pounds a month and, you know, the soaring price of food bills to feed families, etc. So I think that's kind of an interesting strategy. We also talked a little bit about how the pandemic has changed the way people dress and how working from home, you know, you're not going to be suited and booted in the same way that you would be when you're in the office. You know, sort of pre-pandemic, you had sort of two wardrobes. You had your work clothes and then your leisure clothes whereas now those are sort of combined and he sort of recognizes that Hmm. and we talked about how the smart shoe of the bygone era was a nice leather shoe whereas now it's a nice trainer you know and even when I went to the office I was there with him and the PR rep and the PR rep was suited and booted and Schultz himself was dressed very casually so he sort of embodies that kind of philosophy and you know, he said his big piece of advice for retail leaders is to find your USP, to find something unique about your brand and then be very clear about that. Be very clear about who your customers are and targeting your customers. And I think that's definitely what he's doing. I was lucky enough to go to Wimbledon last week and I remember that trainers used to be a big no-no at Wimbledon. And so I forced myself to wear some sort of strappy sandal things and then I got there and everybody was wearing white trainers and I thought okay it really has <laughs> white trainers are really they're, they're over according to the times mm. as fashion editor anyway but um <laughs> uh, there you are and on to our fun story of the week which is that the founder of an Indian e-commerce startup has been criticized for tweets detailing how the company replaced 90% of its support team with an AI bot this is a story that we've all been discussing and everybody's been secretly fearing for their jobs. Is AI going to replace us? Is it going to be the end of humanity, etc.? So I thought this was kind of quite a fun story. Have you read much of this, Ailish? It's interesting that, you know, as you said, this is something that we've seen a lot of talk about how it's, oh, it's not going to do that. That's not what's going to happen. If anything, we're going to be hiring more people in order to actually run the AI, people who have specific skills with AI. 
what surprised me is that he was quite honest about that decision. He wasn't trying to kind of cover it up and backpedal. He was like, tough, yes, necessary, absolutely. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> I wonder I wonder though if there's perhaps an underlying reason because it said here that it was initially built to handle customer queries much faster than his employees had been able to respond. It said that the time elapsing before an initial response was reduced from one minute to 44 seconds to zero and resolution time from two hours and 13 minutes to three minutes and 12 seconds. They're quite big jumps. So I wonder if that's perhaps just something that's specific to his platform and that perhaps there were some underlying issues perhaps within his people that made him do something that drastic Mm. um, because that's quite a drastic change i think it reportedly told cnn that 23 redundancies were made in september mm. but i think that the um the twitter sphere was kind of upset about the way that it was done and sort of saying it was very disrespectful to the people that had been laid off it was saying a founder is boasting about layoffs along with a new feature in the same thread this leaves a bad taste for everyone who knows Duckham and has followed its journey which is the company that he is the chief exec of so there you go if you need any advice on how to use ai that is not the way to go <laughs> how not to do ai how well somebody somebody said how not to announce layoffs yeah brilliant yeah <laughs> exactly don't boast about making people redundant while raving about the amazing ai benefits that you're, yes. you're receiving <laughs> fantastic so that's all for this week now on to our interview with paul mills hicks kind of look back on your time as commercial director at Sainsbury's how has the sort of FMCG retail sector changed? I think the rise of the discounters is probably the biggest change even over and above online so the combined market share of the discount sector in the UK is substantially larger than that of, of online so I think online gets a lot of coverage because of the tech and the digital growth in the broader economy but in reality on the coal face and if you look at customer behavior they were much more towards discount and I think what that tells us is that competition is very healthy in the sector and what it also tells us is that no one's differentiating enough to pull away from the pack meaning that the trade-off between the quality versus the price is very very transparent so I think those would be the overriding drivers of what I saw in my time and what we were trying to do and compete better on. If you look at the evolution of the sector, I think it's changed again, where maybe the headline and certainly the time and effort from both manufacturers and retailers, it's all about inflation. The level of inflation we've seen over the last 18 months has meant that the sector has had one eye on inflation and one eye on how it manages the reduction in demand that those price increases have, have driven. So really tough yards. You get hit with competition by Aldi and Lidl in the UK, then you get hit by the pandemic, and then you get hit by inflation. And how have customer needs changed over that time? And what are sort of retail leaders doing in response to those needs? I would suggest that the needs haven't changed. What everybody wants is a grocery store at the end of their garden and that everything's free and customers love that. And actually, the industry has strived hard to deliver that. If you look at the cost of products today versus the cost of products 20 years ago, it's frightening to see how little prices have actually changed. And in many categories, actually, prices 
are lower today than they would have been for the same product 20 years ago. So I think that trade-off that consumers make, which is what am I prepared to pay for what am I getting? What is the functionality? What is the emotional benefit that something will bring? Hasn't really changed. In terms of what I think everybody is trying to do, everybody is trying to tell a story that is different about their customer proposition. So whether at one end you have an Aldi trying to say that it's cheaper than brands, or at the other end you have Marks and Spencer's trying to differentiate on innovation and new product development. I think what every retail leader is saying is, why am I different? Why should customers come to me? And when customers go home and use my products, I want them to remember me in a positive light. How is my brand going to manifest in the home within that usage occasion in a positive sense? So, so I think everybody's fixated on the same solution to the problem, which is, avoiding the race to the bottom, avoiding the commoditization of the experience. And good retail leadership recognizes that and tries to get itself away from the middle ground. What would you say are some of the biggest consumer trends within the FMCG sector currently? Probably the single biggest trend we're seeing right now is the switch out of national brands into own label. Uh, I think that is some of the, the volume numbers that you see in the market are quite staggering. But I think it's worth maybe stepping back and looking at the last six or seven years and see how consumers have adjusted. And they very much have tried to fit the choices they make around the lifestyles they're trying to lead. So let me explain a little bit. The first one is, I think if you go back pre-pandemic, so 2017, 18, 19, I think you saw the emergence of lots of new brands. There was a lot of cheap capital around, a lot of startups, a lot of money that was prepared to take the risk on a new brand. And I think consumers were open-minded to try something different, experiment outside maybe the choices that they make. It's worth reminding ourselves in a typical full-offer supermarket, you have about 32,000 products in the in the big formats. In somewhere like a, a discount, you'd get to about 3,000, excuse, 2,500, 3,000. But most shopping baskets for a household in the UK are only ever made up of 300 products. So you can see the difference there in what is on offer versus where the demand is concentrated. So I think 17 to the pandemic, there was a real preparedness to try something new. And that was rewarding brands that maybe were unheard of and two years later were doing really well. I think if you look at Little Moons as an example in in Frozen, I think the growth of little moons has been remarkable. If you then think of the pandemic, what jumps out in the pandemic was actually a reversion to safe and secure brands that people knew and understood. The other bit is that because they were shopping a lot less frequently, they actually changed pack sizes. So one of the biggest insights were consumers were prepared to maybe buy a pack size that they hadn't bought before. And that could last for three or four weeks, whereas before you get shopping habits that were very much weekly. So I think pack size is something, again, we forget, but is an important part of how consumers navigate choice. And obviously, because of the pack size, there's lots of difference then on price. So instead of buying weekly £1, you might be able to buy £3.50 for four weeks worth. So an interesting change, not necessarily in the brand, but then in the, the pack size. Then finally, as I've started on, what you have today is a real switch out of national brands. 
people are prepared to give own brand a go. And invariably, I'm sure they're going to discover that own brand across a number of retailers perform exceptionally well. Of course, I'm bound to say Sainsbury's performs better than most. But I think that the truth is that the trend across the marketplace is there, which is if I'm going to pay cans of soup at the moment, for example, a lot of interesting comments. Is it really worth £1.70 for a single can of soup? No, I'd much rather trade down into own brand and then be pleasantly surprised that actually the taste profile is pretty good in that area. So it'll be interesting as we come out the other side. If you look at the growth of, let's take, for example, Aldi in the United Kingdom, 92% of Aldi's products are own brand. So when we see switching out of supermarkets into Aldi, there's actually a two-step tango happening. And that is not just a step out of the larger traditional format into the smaller discounter format. There's actually a choice out of national brand and into own brand. And that's sticky. So what will be interesting is cost of living crisis. Do we get a recession in the second half of 23, first half of 24? To what degree will habits change more permanently, making it slightly harder, I think, for the FMCG national brands, unless they're offering something that's really differentiated? and that there isn't an own brand equivalent from. So in, interesting times, I think, if you're an FMCG. Probably the, the final bit I'd call out on FMCGs, if I think back to 2008 and the global financial crisis, the inflation was quite high, nothing like what we've seen recently. The second year post-GFC, a lot of the national brands realised they'd put through too much cost price increase. And what we then saw was a desire to promote to be able to bring down the average cost price but the FMCGs were not prepared to give up the cost price increases they've got through the system in the previous year so the other thing I think we'll see is a return certainly in the lead up to Christmas 23 but I'd expect in 24 for a lot more promotional activity to come back from the FMCGs and find its way back into the the retailers. If we look at the challenges that are affecting the FMCG retail sector, particularly supermarket retail, you know, you've got the cost of living crisis, which I think is sort of overshadowing a lot of things and online retail. What are some of the other challenges? The war for talent. People talk about skilled and unskilled. A lot of this labour only runs well when you have people who care, who know what they're doing, have real leadership skills to the lead teams and are prepared to work unsociable hours. So if you're a factory owner right now, yes, you've got inflation, but all those are logical things to deal with. If you can't attract, retain, motivate the sergeant majors that make these big organisations run, you're in all sorts of trouble because you just can't get the output. And if you don't have availability, then you get the problems that we've seen often commentated in the retailers. It's not because the retailers are messing up. It's not because the FMCGs are messing up. It's just that there aren't enough people to keep the manufacturing lines going at the sort of level that they need to be. And the, and the same is true of supermarkets, which is these are 2.5% EBIT businesses. They're not very profitable in absolute terms. They barely return cost of capital to shareholders. They depend on a cadre of extremely hard work and extremely committed people who are actually very bright. And if you can't keep that cadre going it's really hard to optimise profitability at 2.5% without compromising in different areas. And you you can visit any supermarket in the UK today. 
you know, at the most extreme, this is not my personal view, but if you look at some of the commentators out there, they'll say, play spot the staff member. You can walk through the store and you don't see a colleague until you get to the checkout, the self-checkout. And then you feel terrible for them because you've got one colleague, man in a self-checkout area that might have 22 customers and mm. get customers standing there with their hands up, getting more and f- more frustrated. Some will walk out. So again, that isn't because the supermarkets are trying to make people's lives difficult. It's because getting skilled labor that cares about what it does, is motivated, is really, really hard. And I'd say that's true of the retailers. It's true of the FMCGs. When we solve that as a country, I don't know. And depending on which newspaper you pick up on what day and what article you read from where, it's invariably blamed on a whole bunch of different reasons. So I don't think anybody has convinced me that as a nation, we understand why we have this problem today that we didn't have pre-pandemic. It reminds me of my student days. I worked in um, my local Morrison supermarket and I do remember manning the self-checkout and uh, particularly on a Saturday afternoon, it would just be absolute pandemonium. And I think, you know, the, I don't know if you had the same experience, but, you know, I, I remember lots of skilled store managers at Sainsbury's with 30 years experience and what they created, their passion and commitment to running their shop and running it well with a sense of pride rubs off on you. And so you get to a point where, you sort of learn it by osmosis by hanging around these people. Again, I'm not sure that that cadre of sergeant majors, people on the front line who are there to be able to train and help support the younger generations coming through is as strong maybe as it was when I was younger. You know, those icon figures that sort of secretly you'd never tell anyone you admired. Mm -hmm. You actually did admire them and you did adopt some of their behaviours. What are some of the ways that chief execs of major FMCG retail businesses, supermarket chains, what are some of the ways that they can support their employees to either help retain talent? What are some of the things that they can do to attract talent? I think ultimately the CEO embodies the spirit of the organisation. I think CEOs get a lot of negative coverage because they're seen as being all-powerful, all-knowing. It's an incredibly tough job and I would give all the retail businesses more credit, I think, than the FMCG. I'll explain that in a second. But if you're a CEO of a major frontline retailer, doesn't matter which one, Little Aldi, Sainsbury's, Tesco, everything you do and everything your organization does is in the public eye, is in the, the media. You know, if I said to, to your listeners, who's the CEO of Anglo-American, they'd have no idea what I'm talking about. Well, a lot of them would have an idea, but no one could actually name them. If I said to you, who's the CEO of Tesco's largest retailer, most people can name him. And that's because the media puts a lot of pressure on the the CEO that is customer-facing, whether Anglo-American is hidden behind. The fact that Anglo-American is multiple times bigger than Tesco is kind of irrelevant. Because these organizations are so large, uh, last time I checked, I think Tesco was 300,000 people. And the food sector in the UK is the largest employer of people. I think it's 4 million people across the whole of the food sector. A lot of the guys and girls, what they see of the organisation isn't the official stuff that cascades down. It is what they read in the press, the media and the profile. And therefore, rightly or wrongly, on the retail side, what you portray in the media, in the PR world, in all those touch points, 
is the narrative and the pride that people will put into their daily job. And it's also the storytelling you have to you have to do. So sadly, the, the CEOs, I think, have an incredibly important role, let's say 50%, which is to be the public embodiment of the spirit of the organisation. And that's a really tough job. It's a PR job in many ways. And some days you're facing into the media, other days you're facing into investors, then you do an investor roadshow. Then you're doing th- something on ESG. So it really is all consuming and needs huge amounts of uh, energy to, to get it right. I think the second part of that, and it's a little bit more technical, is then getting the right narrative, which is every organization that is focused on customer service, if you tell it it's because of a bonus or financial metrics, you just lose the will of the organization. That's not valuable work. That's just hidden targets so i think the second important job and kind of links to the the public spirit is what is the narrative are you trying to be the best at service are you trying to be the best at price are you trying to be the best at quality is it about convenience is it about role in the community so having a narrative that really ties into what you're doing that is really crystal clear hopefully fits on no more than one piece of paper so it's not confusing and difficult and probably most importantly is authentic so i think colleagues ability to see through corporate blah 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 is very high and they won't follow and they won't believe so it does have to have a real authenticity and then when the ceo is in front of those public facing forums it has to feel real and authentic and tied up so I'd say those were the two things I'd put my time and effort in. For the FMCGs, it's all the same, except with one difference, which is they just don't get the amount of coverage and the amount of interest as those big national retailers do. So so I think if I had to make a choice, you'd probably choose to be an FMCG because it's a slightly easier job than if you wanted to be the CEO of Tesco, Sainsbury's, Asda, Aldi, etc. What are some of the ways that retailers are succeeding if we look at the areas of retail that are doing really well what are they doing that's making them so successful i think marks and spencers is doing a good job i think when you speak to people in the industry be it fmcg or retail there's a real recognition their stores look very different to everybody else's and that's not just because they've paid attention to the detail of presentation and invested in the store estate But if you look at the customer proposition ranging from new product development through to how they present value, I was paid for years to try and put them out of business. I clearly failed in that, but I would doff my hat to them. They're doing a really good job of showing what can be different in one grocer to another. So I think M&S are generally doing a good job at that differentiated end. I think at the other end, Aldi deserve a lot of recognition alongside Lidl. The last Kantar data still had them growing at 25% per year. That is, yes, I'm sure partly due to the cost of living crisis. You can see in the way that Tesco, Sainsbury's have gone price match, that they've tried to neutralize the price advantage. But to be fair, Aldi continued to grow despite that price advantage being neutralized to some degree. And what that tells you is that the experience in Aldi is good enough, the range is good enough, and the quality is good enough. 
to still justify customers spending more of their wallet with them. So it's an interesting analysis because in reality, what you're saying or what I'm saying is that the top and the bottom end are very clearly focused on what makes them different. I think as a customer consumer, you can therefore make a choice, whereas the rest of the pack are maybe more clustered around the the center of that normal distribution. I think it frames very clearly for the CEOs what the challenge is. How is my brand different? And how is the customer experience, both in my store and when it gets for the home consumption, what makes me different, really? Mm. What are some of the things that chief execs perhaps get wrong about physical in-store retail? If we look at, I know online retail is so huge, but if we look at the physical in-store experience, What are some of the things that perhaps CEOs get wrong about that or perhaps need to improve? It is very rare to have a CEO that gets things wrong. The CEOs are usually aggregators of opinions from hundreds of people they will come into contact with from all different types of function within the organization, customer insights, listening groups, retail operations, etc. I've always thought maybe one of the problems is in the past, 20 years ago, many CEOs had very large egos 20 years ago, and, and they thought it was it all flowed from that retailer. The modern retail operation is a much more diffuse organization, still really important role to CEO, but it's not their personal views that are typically manifested. So that's where I'd start. I think the second point that goes to it, and this is where I think the retailer and to a degree the FMCG is really important is to what degree can you be data-led and to what degree are you anecdote-led? So there's been a number of times where I've sat in customer focus groups, retail listening groups, where it becomes really clear what needs to be changed in the store or on a product and you're convinced of it. So as an advocate for then trying to get those changes make, either a CEO or anybody that becomes a really strong advocate, what you then realize it didn't work and invariably i think my learnings over the years is that humans are really really bad because our bias of what we see with our eyes taste and hear tells us it must be so whereas now if you can take the data and aggregated information and insight on the behavior of 19 million people you can get a completely and utterly different outcome so in summary i'd say it's less about the ceo it's more about the organization And then secondly, I think there's probably still too much bias based on anecdote and small groups of people, as opposed to trying to really harness the use of big data and insights that a number of these retailers can now use. There's been a lot of talk, even pre-pandemic, about the death of the high street and how the high street is becoming a sort of ghost town. And that the impact of, I know this is particularly true for fashion retail beauty retail the move to online shopping even way before the pandemic has been a major challenge but what are some of the ways that leaders can attract customers to their physical in-store retail locations you have to be really focused on what the consumer wants is it that they want the ability to get in really quick and get a can of Coke or Pepsi and get out again? Is it that coffee is a real halo driver and they will travel to your coffee destination above all else because you've got something different to tell? Or is it entertainment? 
Is it that they want to see a bit of life and a little bit of social activity whilst they have their food? So I think being really, really clear on what problem are you solving for the consumer and then being single-minded on delivering that is hugely, hugely important because everything else in the organisation, everything else in the in-store experience needs to dovetail into that look and feel. And I was struck, I think, in the last 18 months, we've seen a lot more of the premium bakeries opening. Oleanstein seems to be popping up everywhere. If you'd asked me, you know, I'd been very cynical. I'd say, why on earth would this work? This is expensive stuff. It's all a bit too fancy. That's not what our consumers want in the UK. I'd have to eat humble pie there. They're completely right. And when you experience the format and the offer, it's because everything from the treatment of the floor substrate through to the color palettes and the product lineup are all geared. You're not really just buying some calories in that regard. There's an element of feeling good, a little bit of self-indulgence, a little bit of treat. And actually, I can grab a seat and chillax for a little bit of time. So, you know, those, those bit like gales as well. And so to my mind, in a cost of living crisis and what we came through in terms of the pandemic, those formats shouldn't be doing well. But because they're very, very single minded in what they're doing and the expansion plans seem to work, I think I get it. So I think anybody that's operating a chain on the high street or any independent as well, that leader's number one job is to aggregate all of the views from all of the insights they can get and then be really single-minded in what am I doing for my consumer and how is it all consistent with each other. What do you think the future of retail looks like? Statistically, I'm sure I'm 98% right when I say that the cost of living crisis will be with us for about 18 months and then it will all get better and it'll be an exact repeat of previous economic cycles. So you can see that eating out will continue to be suppressed at the higher end. Travel will reduce. There'll be trade down into own brand. I think the real trick of trying to look into that crystal ball is what might prove to be sticky. I think from all of those, I would maybe pull out two. The, the first one is I really would love to see some compelling insights and data that lets me know whether the work at home trends are going to be truly permanent or just take a while to unwind. Well, some interesting information, I think 78% of all jobs in the UK have to be done physically in the place of work. So we're only talking about 22% of the jobs that can be done remotely on a regular basis. But if that 22% only works in an office four days a week, you've lost 20% of 22%. And that's quite a big hit to whoever was benefiting in that channel. So to my mind, I'm less worried about the economic circumstances. It will just follow the normal economic pattern. But this work from home that is now very entrenched, if that doesn't return fully to normal, then I think some of the changes will be permanent. And if you said, well, what changes? I think regional high streets, we talked about uh, Gales and seen they, they might actually do okay in those regional high streets. But those that were in the traditional city centres, and anecdotally, whether you're talking food service or retail, Mondays and Fridays now 
in big city centres, no one seems to be doing very much. So Tuesdays, Wednesdays and Thursdays will be interesting. In terms of online, I think it will just gradually over time grow. I don't see a world where we see it go back up to the 18s, 19% that we saw in the pandemic in, in the next five years. But if you ask me, will my children shop more online than I did? Yes, 20 years down the line. I'm sure there's somewhere it says that the immediate changes are small and then suddenly it's a big hockey stick somewhere between five years and 20 years. So online, for me, I think I'm less, for food retail, less curious about, but the work from home I am. I think on the online, yeah, I've got a lot of respect for, for Amazon, what they've done globally. But if you look at the acquisition of Whole Foods, if you look at their market share in food in the US, even in their hometown of Seattle, I don't think there's a lot to really worry about from online. Mm. And then the, the final one for me within that sort of framework of changes is Aldi and Lidl. So I think there's been a lot of commentary that they have at least reduced the level of store openings. But if you visit an Aldi and Lidl new store opening, it isn't really a discounter. It is just a small supermarket. So so that final bit for me, and I don't think this is a, an immediate question, but is to what degree do the lines merge between what a discounter is and what a large supermarket are in range, price and proposition? Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. We're available on Apple, Spotify and wherever you get your podcasts.